My name is Mike Sherrod. I'm the interim pastor here at Wallace, leading us through a study of the Apostle Peter's first epistle. This morning we're looking at one verse. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. So I'll ask you not to look at your Bible, but just listen to me as a method to my madness. So hang on just a second. Here's our text for this morning. 1 Peter 4, 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your... How might you expect Peter to finish his sentence? Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your worship? Yeah, that would be reasonable. For the sake of your enjoyment of the Lord. That would make sense. Be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your obedience, your love, your service, your Bible reading. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your family's welfare, for your work, for your witness. All of those things would be very reasonable ways for Peter to finish his thought. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of those things. What does he in fact write? Now you can look at your text. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Might not be what we expected. Isn't it interesting that one of the simplest things to do mechanically, right, just think a thought, a prayerful thought, or open your mouth to pray. A lot of us are good at opening our mouths. What seems obviously simple mechanically, a lot of us struggle to do. Pray. So how many of us fashion ourselves to be a praying person. Obviously, the obstacle isn't mechanical, opening our lips, forming a thought. It's in what Peter identifies as being self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter is teasing out in the second half of verse 7 the implications of what he said at the first half. The end of all things is at hand. The curtain is going to fall on earth history soon. It may be before I finish this sentence. It may be 20 years from now. Or 20 times 20 years from now. Regardless, Peter says... Be ready, sober, alert, fully expectant for the end of all things. And notice the second half of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, he doesn't command you to pray. He commands you, they're both imperatives, present uh, 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 active imperatives, he commands you to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Translated, 
let nothing keep you from being a continuously praying person. So let's ask these four questions of the second half of verse 7. Number one, what are two essential qualities of a praying person? I see two in the verse, desperation and focus. Desperation. The end of all things is at hand. Spiritually vital people are driven by a sense of urgency. Christ's return is near. The end of earth history is imminent. And therefore they're desperate to pray because they want to stay in contact with the source of all good, all power, all life, all love, and all grace. Jesus. They're desperate to stay in touch with Jesus. So Peter doesn't say, pray when you feel like it. Pray when you have a need. Pray when times are really tough. Pray if you find time. Pray when the Spirit moves you. No. He says, pray in light of the fact that Christ's return is near. I want to be on speaking terms with Jesus when he appears. So praying persons are desperate and they're also marked by focus. So he says, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the purpose of your prayers. Those two words are essentially interchangeable. It would be like somebody saying to you, as you're beginning to get, to get torqued, they'd say, hey, stay cool, calm, relax, it's okay. Those are all synonyms for gather yourself. So he's enjoining you and me to sobriety in our minds, cool-headedness, balanced thinking, clear clarity in our thinking. Obviously, this self-control and sobriety is against the backdrop of verse 3, where he describes a lifestyle of people that his Christian audience are no longer associating with. They're paying a price to some extent. Verse 3 says their, their friends, their former colleagues, were living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So now you know if you're a clear thinker. Now you know if you're in your right mind. You're dealing honestly with the facts. And the facts are, Peter warns those who are living that way that they will face, have to give an account to him who's, who is ready to judge the living, the, dead, the living and the dead. There is a judgment coming for everyone. One person said that to deny that we live in a moral universe is like driving with your eyes closed. Or the great British philosopher, uh, literary great C.S. Lewis said this, if truth is objective, and we live in a world we didn't create, then the most destructive way to live is to deny this primary fact. A sober-minded person lives in light of the fact, yeah, there's a judgment coming. And he lives in light of the fact that after Jesus renders to everyone their due, the wedding celebration starts. And so Peter is saying, you don't want anything creeping into your thinking that distracts you from Jesus' second coming and enjoyment of the great wedding feast that Jesus will host. So what can, what can, what, what can we conclude in this section? This much. 
both clear-headed and self-controlled people, as good as those things are, they're very good things in themselves, Peter says they serve a greater purpose, being a praying person. So you know you're in your right mind when you want to pray. What is the key element to being ready for the appearing of Jesus at the end of time? Prayer. So maybe Peter's thinking about Jesus' admonition to him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested when Jesus turned to his sleepy-eyed disciples, including Peter, and he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So the sober, clear-minded person lives in a spirit of prayer, a running dialogue with Jesus. They're a praying person. Second question. What does a praying person relish? So I want to assume for a second you're not familiar with prayer, you're not familiar with the Bible, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. We're so grateful that you've turned in to our worship service. So you, don't, you would just say, I don't really know much about prayer. What's the point? What's it all about? Let me explain this fundamental fact. Prayer is what we tell God about himself. So being right-minded, being clear-thinking, is thinking rightly and clearly and truly about God. See, we possess the sacred privilege of communicating with God, what we call prayer. We possess this privilege because God is lavishly communicative with us. He loves to reveal, to disclose, to communicate, to speak on the strength of that we can do, do so with him. So first and foremost, think of prayer as responding continually to the facts. Here's a really important fact about life. God is everywhere present. God sees everything. God knows everything. God hears everything. God controls everything. So, stay in conscious communication with that person. Just like a soldier in the middle of a battle is on his walkie-talkie talking to Command Central, finding out where are the reinforcements, where's the enemy, what do I do? Never wants to lose contact. Prayer then, when you pray, you are declaring to God that he is sovereign, that he is desirable, that he's good, that he's sufficient, that he's accessible, that he's generous. When you pray, you're making statements about who God is. We're telling God who he is. <laughs> so why wouldn't we pray about everything? This is at the heart of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray without ceasing. Romans 12, 2. Be devoted to prayer. And Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with, a, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Do you want proof that God wants you talking to him about everything? Just open your Bible. 
Where does it flip open to? The Psalms. 150 prayers given to you. They're songs, but they're prayers. When you sang earlier, you were praying to God. You're singing prayers. 150. What one theologian called an anatomy of the soul, the expression of every human emotion, written for virtually every significant thing you would respond to in your life. So we have this different genre of psalms. Psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of confession, psalms of confidence, psalms of petition, psalms of lament, prayers given for every situation. Like, it's almost like a greeting card for every occasion. There you go, 150 prayers. There's nothing we can't discuss with God, and therefore it must be true that when you feel like praying, pray. That's too precious a time to pass up. When you don't feel like praying, pray. That is too precarious a time to pass through. So if you're up to praying, by all means, pray. If you're not up to praying, pray anyway. See, why is the alternative worse? What are you like when you know yourself to not be in a spirit of prayer, a praying person? You're probably not self-controlled and sober-minded. You're probably ruled by your passions, full of self-trust. And you, be, you can become frustrated, content, discontent, excuse me, with the wrong things. Or frustrated with the right things for the wrong reasons. Prayer is often prompted by discontentment with the way things are. Sober-minded people see the status quo and can't help but burst into prayer. And this is something we have in common with God. You refuse to accept things the way they are, as does God. Jesus came showing this in his public ministry. Sickness is wrong, so he healed. And we pray for those who are sick. Conflict between people is wrong, so we pray about it. Terrorists shedding innocent blood is wrong, so we pray against it. Corruption in politics is wrong, so we pray, as Jamie did earlier. The cycle of poverty is wrong, so we pray. The status quo is broken. It's not life as God wants it, so we pray. How can you be at peace with a world that isn't at peace with God? That would be the point. So here are the two reasons we are confident God hears our prayers. Here are the two reasons. One, he is as disgusted and discontent with sin and injustice as we are, but more so. He's disgusted in a holy and perfectly righteous way. So he loves to hear our prayers as his way of changing the status quo. No wonder we're told in Revelation that the prayers of the saints are incense before God on his throne. So what happens when you ask God, as you should, to change the status quo? When you express your discontentment with the way things are, that they shouldn't be that way. What happens? 
you can't stay the same. You can't live in the status quo. So if you're praying for someone's marriage, what about yours? If you're praying for someone you sense isn't a good steward of their resources, what about you? Parents, you're praying that your kids would be more grateful? That's a good prayer. What about the status quo of your heart? You're praying about somebody's pride? What about yours? So don't be surprised if you pray with humility that your prayer reveals the best in God and perhaps the worst in you. Don't wonder if one of the reasons we don't pray more is we're resigned to let things be as they are. There are a group of people, and there's a group of people in this church who aren't resigned. They meet Tuesday mornings for prayer at 7.30. The link is in the e-news. Everyone is welcome to join us. I prayed with this group of people for uh, almost three years, and it's really clear. They're not content with the status quo. They're not resigned with life as it is. They plead with God to change things. Join us, please. The link is in the uh, e-news, Tuesday, 7.30. Here's a mystery, beloved. God changes things in this fallen world. He heals, he provides, he delivers, he helps, he rescues, he guides. He does so through a primary vehicle, prayer. But he doesn't always do so just the way we want when we want, and how we want. God changes the status quo, but not necessarily on our terms. So if you're a praying person, you realize God has his own timetable. This is why Jesus taught his disciples, persevere in prayer, assured you can never wear him out. You'll never hear the Father say, oh, you again? But rather, what took you so long? Listen to this promise of Jesus. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. But be sure of this. As God goes about changing the status quo through our prayers, he will change you. Because in prayer, among other things, we seek to get a tighter grip on heaven. And the soul that gets a tighter grip on heaven, as heaven gets its grip on you, you invariably loosen your grip on the things that keep you cemented to this earth. Money, status, possessions, pleasure, comfort, popularity. God begins to sift in your heart what's really important. That's one reason we're sure God hears our prayers. He is as discontent, if not more so, with the status quo than we are who pray. Here's the second reason. It's what God has done about the status quo. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God did not allow his world to be forever stained with the filth of human arrogance, human rebellion, human self-reliance, and human self-righteousness. No, God came to interrupt it, to change the status quo. God came in Jesus Christ. He came to the garbage dump called the earth. 
made garbage by human sin, and he walked for 33 years in prayerful dependence upon his father, lived a perfectly flawless moral life, subjected himself at the end of it to unjust treatment as one who had committed a million sins in order to purchase cleansing, salvation, acceptance, righteousness, eternity, life for those who otherwise have no interest in it. How do you know God's discontent with the status quo? Look at the cross. Every time you see the cross, it should be a reminder, God was not content to leave this world in sin. God won't leave you in sin. Flee to this cross for your salvation. Flee to this Jesus. Ask him to take you, to make you his. Follow him as the one who ever lives to pray for you. Third question about this phrase, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. What does a praying person do? A praying person responds. Remember, it's a, praying is continually responding to the facts. It responds in two main venues, two simple venues. The first venue is a praying person carves out some space, some quiet, free from distraction, to be with the Lord. If, you're, if your time of prayer is driving to work, I don't want to be following you. Because <laughs> how can you concentrate on the road and give undistracted clear-minded attention to the one you're praying to. But let's be honest here. We're not real good at this. Right? I, this, is not, this is not a sermon to guilt you. There's not an ounce of desire in my heart to guilt you. So let's just be honest and transparent. We don't do prayer really well. I don't know that we think of ourselves as praying persons. Sometimes we can barely start. We don't know what to say. We feel hypocritical. We feel distant, spent, weary. If you don't know where to start, just start where you are. God, I don't know where to start. God, I don't know what to say. I don't have the words, so give me the words. God, open my mouth. God, stir my heart. He will. Now, one of the best ways to prime the pump, if you don't feel like praying, you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to say in prayer, is to get out the Bible. Maybe start with the prayers that God's given us in the Psalms. But I have found in my experience that a prayerless, cold heart has been warmed by the truth of Scripture. That the same Holy Spirit that inspired all of these words loves to use them to bring prayer, to bring life, to bring vitality into my heart, into my lips, and back to God. If you don't feel like a praying person, develop a closer relationship with his word, and you will find the words, you will find yourself praying. And you'll also get God's perspective on interpreting the events of your life and know how to pray intelligently. So that's one venue. Carve out a time. I didn't say three hours. I didn't give you any length of time. Find a time. I know moms, you've got kids running around, it's busy. How in the world am I going to do it? Was, it? was it Susanna Wesley who was in the kitchen with all these kids at her feet? 
And uh, she would just, when she'd need to pray, she'd throw her apron over her head and just start praying. Anyway, whatever it takes. Moms, uh, dads, maybe you can carve out time to be with the kids and give mom a break to help. Um, here's, the, here's the second venue. Praying spontaneously, as needed. Something in your life causes you to praise? Praise. Give thanks? Thank. You're convicted of a sin? Confess it. Something comes to mind to ask the Lord about? Ask him. Talk to him. A need arises? A person uh, uh, tells you about a need? You petition the Lord for that person spontaneously. So a praying person really is never far from either the thought or the word because they're cognizant of the presence of Jesus. They're walking with Jesus. They're aware of Jesus. They're thinking about Jesus. They're talking to Jesus. It really becomes a very natural thing. Oh, Lord, what about this, that, or that? Here's the fourth question. What does a praying person experience? So I just get, I give you a short list of things a praying person experiences. First, joy of answered prayer. Do you know that joy? Where your jaw just drops? We prayed, we waited, God did it. Wow, so encouraging. And it becomes its own reward. You pray, God answers, what do you want to do? You want to pray some more. See how God's going to answer. I would encourage families to develop prayer logs in your home. And so with the kids, you're recording specific prayers in a log. Over a lifetime, you're teaching your children, we pray about everything. And then as God answers, you put the answers in the prayer log. And what do your kids, what are they raised to be? Praying people. Why? They've seen God answers prayer. And it motivates them to pray. The joy of answered prayer. We recently had four specific things, Janice and I, that we said, look at these four specific things God answered. I won't give you the details. Happy to do so one-on-one. -on -one. What does a praying person experience? Patience waiting for God to answer. I've prayed for certain things for 40 years. Don't have the answer yet. Still praying, still waiting. Be patient, Mike. Trust me, patience. We also experience a concrete way to express our gratitude. I love this verse in Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? So here's a person overcome with the goodness of God, a sense of all that God has done for him, and he's raising a really good question. What do I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What should I do about it? <laughs> he answers his own question this way. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. What should I do about how good God is to me? Pray. Ask him for things. Call on his name. Praise him, thank him, petition him. What does a praying person experience? Accountability. Praying keeps us sober about the second coming. Evoking prayers such as, Lord, save me from myself for yourself. Save this world for yourself and show me my role in it. What does a praying person experience? Freedom. 
God helps us as we talk with him, sort out our priorities. We may find we're spending too much time building sandcastles down by the seashore at low tide, that in four hours they're going to be gone. We may find that out in prayer. That's a wonderful freedom. We experience humility when we pray. We realize, I'm not in control. I don't have a lot of power. I'm asking the one who does. We experience direction. God clarifies our vision. Am I where God wants me to be? Am I being responsible with my possession, with my words, my time? Am I loving the unlovable? Because really, if you're a praying person and you're constantly confronted with who God is, you realize how unlovable you are in and of yourself. And that bursts compassion, grace, sensitivity, love for the unlovables in your life. What does a praying person experience? Safety. Because prayer helps us see the folly of living for anything else but the Lord and his ways. What does a praying person experience? Compassion. We ask the Lord to open the eyes of those we know and care for who don't know him, who have no sense that there's a judgment coming. If we're praying for them, we ought to have compassion on them and ask, what does it look like, Lord, to speak them about the coming judgment, about Jesus who bore the judgment for us. Mercy. And here, if you're following in the outline, I'm looking at Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. We're constantly reminded of the great cost to Jesus that earned us the right and the confidence to go to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, having sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he is praying for us, where he is hearing our prayers, where he is translating our prayers into his Father's ears, making them perfect, as imperfect as our prayers are. But his way to the heavens was through his horrific cross. He earned the right to sit down at his Father's right hand and pray for you through the cross. The priest who laid down his life, who was the sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, hold, let us hold fast our confessions, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The sinless, flawless Jesus, whose perfect life qualified him to be sacrificed in our place on the cross. That should humble us. It should make us look carefully at the sin that so easily entangles us. It should cause us to have comfort and grace knowing Jesus is right there in our weakness, entering into our struggles with sin. I've been there. I understand. I'll give you the grace. And that is the promise then of verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The writer of Hebrews casting our vision to the very throne of God and calling that the throne of grace grace, not judgment. It will be for some who don't know Jesus, but for those for whom Jesus is their high priest, their sacrifice, who Jesus' cross is their salvation, it is a throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every petition of grace, help me in this need, God, is coupled with a reminder 
receiving mercy. God hasn't given me what I deserve. God has lavished upon me things I could never earn. I don't deserve mercy. We live alone by mercy, mercy, mercy. And at that, at that grace, God has opened a fountain of supply, a fountain of bounty for his people. If God in Christ died for us, there's nothing he won't give us that we need. So we plead at that throne for grace to help in time of need, knowing his face is towards us in love. His face is towards us in compassion and kindness. His face is towards us in unbridled affection and patience. And finally, comfort. In prayer, we confess that this king is on his throne and he wants intimacy with us. The throne of God is a place of intimacy. It's staggering. But there in prayer, he whispers to us, yes, I hear that. I can do that. Trust me in my timing. And in prayer, in light of the end of all things is at hand, Jesus says to us, I'll be right there. I'm coming soon. Can't wait to see you. That will make you a praying person. Let's pray. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Amen.